On April 9, 2015, Robert Mickey, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, presented a seminar at the Ash Center on his book titled Paths Out of Dixie, The Democratization of Authoritarian Enclaves in America's Deep South, 1944-1972. The seminar was moderated by Tarek Massoud, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of the Comparative Democracy Seminar Series at the Ash Center. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is, you know, what you are all demonstrating to me is that you are among the most discerning people at Harvard at this particular hour. Uh, we are really thrilled uh, to have uh, Professor Rob Mickey, Associate Professor at the University of Michigan, talk about his new book, Paths Out of Dixie, The Democratization of Authoritarian Enclaves in America's Deep South. Uh, this is a book that I, I've just started reading. I've known about this project for a long time, ever since I met Rob when I first went to ICPSR as a graduate student, um, and we did stats homework together. My nickname at ICPSR was Bubba, as I don't know if you remember this. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it was a testament to my lack of statistical knowledge. Anyways. Um, so uh, Rob is a PhD from the Harvard Government Department. His dissertation, which this book is based on, won the Schatzschneider Award from the American Political Science Association. Um, he is also a graduate of a fair institution in Providence, Rhode Island, that I also count myself as a graduate of, Brown University. And before he became a political scientist and a scholar of American <laughs> politics, he actually worked on issues related to democratization after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union. So I would wager that a lot of your interest, Rob's interest in America and his reconceptualization of the fall of Jim Crow as a collapse of authoritarianism is inspired maybe by some of that experience. Uh, in any case, this book is just out. It is a massive tome. It has taken its place on my shelf alongside Barrington Moore, Theda Scotch Hall. Um, you know, it really is one of these books that you look at and you think, this is what I got into this business to try to one day write. Um, and to see you having done it is really extraordinary. So Rob is going to speak for about 35, 40 minutes, and then hopefully we'll have a good uh, discussion. So take it away, sir. Thank you very much. Boy, what a good introducer you are. That's really amazing. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be back at the uh, mothership here to talk about um, a project I actually started here. And uh, Tarek's absolutely right. I don't think I would have done this if I hadn't worked in Eastern Europe. But um, that doesn't make it necessarily a good project. But I'll let, leave that to you all. So I'm, uh, it is a massive tome. It's, or it's really a sprawling mess. And it's much too much to cover all at once. So I'm just going to talk about little bits of it and then open it up and hopefully we can have a fun discussion. Um, I'll be using this mic because my three-year-old son threw up on my trackpad. That's, that's what he's like. That basically sums him up. Um, okay, so this book has a lot of goals. Um, one is to kind of reinvigorate among scholars of American political development the study of America's democratic development, which seems like an obvious thing to think about, but among um, APD scholars, it really, it really hasn't been. The, the focus, I guess, that APD got started in part um, as a sub-subfield that was concerned with this why no socialism in the United States question, 
um, which is a great question in a lot of ways, but um, that and other questions have kind of steered us away from uh, really wrestling with the strangeness um, of and this kind of tortured process of uh, America's democratization, which in my view really um, wasn't completed until well after um, planning was underway for the bicentennial celebration in the early 1970s. So I'm going to advance a new interpretation of southern states um, as these 11 uh, pockets of authoritarianism living in, sustained by this larger federal democracy, and then um, talk about the ways in which they were destroyed and talk about, in particular, two of them and um, try to motivate this puzzle that, um, of why were similarly situated enclaves, um, why did they uh, exit in very different ways, surprisingly different ways, given their similarities. Um, so um, here is, uh, the, the book really deals with the Deep South in order for me to have something like controls, not controls, but something like controls on the demographics and political economy of these different southern states. So I focus on South Carolina, Mississippi, and Georgia, the first two of which I'll talk about today. Um, and in, um, in three dimensions, dimensions which I'll hope to justify is, is useful um, in thinking about these different configurations, these different democratization processes um, in terms of their, um, the speed and orderliness with which they ended up complying with federal directives, overseeing their democratization, their destruction of suffrage restrictions and, and Jim Crow civil societies. Um, is, is this book right after the Civil War? And oh, sorry. No, I'm talking about the 60s, 1970s. 19s, yeah. I'll get back to the 19th century in just a second. Um, the, uh, the manner in which they incorporated um, black elites and voters into state democratic parties um, and the manner in which they ended up reconciling with the national party, um, these differed um, in some, in some, again, to my mind, surprisingly uh, sharp ways. Um, so what I'm going to do today is um, briefly, maybe you all are already sold on this idea, but I'll, I'll quickly argue that the U.S. South wasn't just a region of Herrenvolk democracy, as lots of scholars talked about it, as Robert Dahl thought about it, right, a democracy for whites but not for blacks, but rather um, just plain authoritarian. Um, I'll compare these two states. I'll talk about um, what I think it was some suggestive evidence of the legacies generated by these different um, paths and then talk about some implications. Um, uh, so like I said, the, the standard view, um, to the extent that people do more in political science than just throw up their hands and shrug and use a dummy variable to capture all of that southernness that is hard to describe, um, to the extent that they do think about it, um, it usually as, is as um, this sense of a Herenvolk democracy, but um, my take is different. So what's important to know, there's been, I don't know if you guys saw this recent piece by Eric Foner in the New York Times, maybe the last week, about the, um, why Reconstruction failed. Um, the, for, my, um, for my purposes, the important point of Reconstruction was what it didn't resolve. And the fact that even after um, the North um, withdrew the last of its troops in the uh, mid-1870s and as 
the various uh, political actors started withdrawing their commitment for voting rights and so on. What's important in my view is the fact that there was, after that, 20 years of increasing political instability. So when you think about conservative Democrats um, representing their main clients, large landowners, by the way, in several of these states, they use the party label conservatives, not even Democrats. But over this period with increasing agrarian unrest, there, there still remained this pretty treacherous partisan environment for conservative Democrats. And it was really not until the 1890s that they were able to do a few things and the sequence was important. First, they continued to use violence and also um, statutes and fraud to shrink um, Southern electorates, not just to extrude more blacks from electoral politics, but tens of thousands of poor whites. And then and only then they called constitutional conventions um, and that in my mind founded new regimes. They replaced fairly liberal Reconstruction area state constitutions with much more conservative ones, constitutions that um, really, uh, really locked in this um, this political exclusion of these groups, constitutions which were opposed by majorities of, majorities of anti-democrats. And the result was these, in my mind, authoritarian polities um, ruled by hegemonic state democratic parties. Again, that, that did a really good job of generating benefits for career politicians and for their major um, political economic clients. And, and this is where, even though I was born in the same hospital as V.O. Key and look up to him a lot, there's one place where I think V.O. Key got it slightly wrong. And he had a normative conception of political parties. The political parties didn't have clear organization, didn't stand for things, didn't take distinct stands in their position taking distinct from other parties and do a good job of ag aggregating public opinion and so on, they didn't count as parties, right? He calls these state democratic no parties um, in his book. And to my mind, these actually were um, really effective parties. They're not parties that would show up necessarily um, on an organization chart, but um, if you take maybe a more nuanced view of thinking institutionally about networks and so on, these were very, very efficient, um, effective organizations. And the fact that they were able to um, exist for a good half century without facing any threat at all um, from forces within and without um, makes them an impressive governance achievement. Um, so um, you might be wondering, well, how the hell can we have these kinds of enclaves inside a, a functioning federal democracy? Well, um, these rulers were not just good but lucky, right? Um, they had some uh, good timing. National Republicans began to do a lot better in the western parts of the United States right at the end of the century, which which let these, the National Republican Party um, relax their efforts. They didn't need to win in the South. Therefore, they didn't need to um, defend voting rights so much. So it's exactly in 1896 as they started doing incredibly well that with that platform, they, for the first time, withdrew their commitment to voting rights. Um, there's also this growing, and again, maybe paradoxically, in this um, very strange period of the quote-unquote progressive era, there was a great deal of national elite ambivalence about universal suffrage. There was, over the next two decades, um, even a consensus building around um, political scientists and others, certainly Woodrow Wilson, that the 15th Amendment was maybe even a mistake. It was, 
it was to be aspirational, not even um, to really mean much um, in terms of the law, that Reconstruction had been a mistake, and that the nation's priorities really needed um, uh, to embrace sectional reconciliation and a continued, um, continued fight with these enclaves and fight against Jim Crow and voting and um, voting restrictions was antithetical to that reconciliation. Um, and again, importantly, there's this, the timorousness of the Supreme Court that summed up in the case of Giles v. Harris, where the court basically said, we know this is awful and unconstitutional, but who are we to say anything about it, right? And the other, um, the other uh, national uh, institutions went along with that. Um, but as well as getting lucky, they were good, and they relied on a lot of influence. Um, they relied on um, Southern, uh, their own influence within Congress, right? This is exactly the time when Republicans in the late 19th century are, are um, coming to dominate Congress really until the New Deal. Um, so the share of Southerners in the um, uh, House Democratic Caucus is, is quite large. It's all, often over 50%. Um, once they did get a president in office, Woodrow Wilson, who had grown up under the yoke of Reconstruction and um, actually had, his family was represented by um, black elected officials when he was a kid in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, he presided over the Jim Crowing of the, um, the Federal Civil Service and the segregation of Washington, D.C. Um, so they um, ended up having friends soon in the executive branch. But even more so, um, Southern Democrats had uh, just, as you know, a huge amount of influence within the National Democratic Party. And it wasn't until 1936 that the National Party actually got rid of its um, two-thirds veto, um, its supermajority rule um, over presidential nominations. A, no a nominee had to secure at least two-thirds of the votes of all the delegates on the convention floor. So that was effectively a Southern veto over uh, national uh, presidential nominations. Um, internally, um, uh, there are a lot of supports. I discuss these in my book. First of all, the um, massive malapportionment in state legislatures that um, was biased toward rural areas and in particular, in particular black belt um, areas of all of these southern states. Um, Jim Crow and suffrage restriction um, um, were both constituent parts of, of enclave rule, but at the same time, they, they themselves um, supported enclave rule. They legitimated it. So they were, this was in a, um, one way in which these, um, these regime elements were self-reinforcing. Um, you all know about Jim Crow and suffrage restriction, but what I, I'm at pains again to argue in my book that um, this is not just a matter of, of racist democratic politics, but that there is just a surprising uh, amount of restrictions on free and fair elections. There were um, uh, not just informally through things like elect electoral voter fraud, but um, a whole lot of statutes that raise incredibly high the cost of barriers to entry for opposition challengers. It was incredibly difficult for opposition parties to get off the ground um, in a variety of ways. And then finally, these constricted civil spheres, um, black and white, um, also, also kind of reinforce um, and, and uh, short up enclave rule because um, all the ways in which 
um, uh, southern states um, surveilled potential opponents, um, prevented any biracial organizing, um, used legislative investigations to harass groups, actually take sometimes physically take labor organizers and um, if not hurting or even killing them, um, dumping them on the other side of a state border and so on. These also had in, in a variety of ways the effects of shoring up enclave rule. Um, I think I need to speed up a little bit. Um, this is almost as long as it took me to write the thing, so I really need to speed up. So let me just talk about how I'm periodizing this southern transition. So to discipline these narratives of these three th southern states in my book and to render them kind of comparable, um, I think about the southern transition as this series of not quite exogenous shocks from without, um, certainly at the beginning, um, coming from uh, the Supreme Court, starting in 1944 with the abolition of the white-only Democratic primary, which over time became a, um, a nice, nice element of enclave rule. Um, Truman's kind of reversal of the Democratic Party's historic guarantee of, of uh, uh, Southern racist politics in 1948, um, Brown v. Board, um, and then something I'll focus on today, um, following from Brown v. Board, um, the campus uh, desegregation crises, um, the invalidation of state legislative malapportionment, or the beginning of one person, one vote, which was in, incredibly important in Georgia, and then the kind of big ticket items you know very well, the Civil and Voting Rights Act. But finally, I'm not going to talk about it today, but um, the two bookends of the transition for me are really um, not about uh, legislation at all or about um, voting rights uh, narrowly conceived, but they're rather um, party reforms, right? So the first the abolition of the white-only Democratic primary provides an opening for blacks to mobilize. Um, and finally, the McGovern-Fraser reforms reversed 150 years of a Democratic Party that was structured confederally, in which the national level really had very little power, um, and instead um, uh, state parties were granted a great amount of autonomy, and that was finally reversed um, after the tear gas started, I mean, stopped wafting over, what was it, Grant Park in Chicago in 1968. The new left pressed these reforms, um, but they um, were kind of the coup de grace of enclave rule. Um, so here's the um, percent black um, in 1940, and you see the, the, the clear um, black belt there. Um, I'm just, I think these are the last maps just want to show you the, the, um, the low country, the so-called low country in South Carolina, its Black Belt region, and the Mississippi Delta region. So I'm going to um, quickly go through um, a probably very unpersuasive um, uh, comparison of these two states. But let me just talk about their antecedent conditions. One of the things... Um, one of my main goals in, uh, in trying to explain how and why these states uh, democratize in different ways is to argue against the usual prime movers of the Southern uh, transformation after World War II in Southern politics, and that is um, what is typically a modernization account, right? 
Um, the southern economy started growing. Yan uh, air conditioning um, started. Um, that brought you Yankees down because um, it was now um, okay to live there um, without your yellow dog Democrat attitudes, right? That um, uh, white racial attitudes started liberalizing a little bit, um, uh, allowed the civil rights movement to gain more steam, right? So it's, it's usually um, political economic forces and, and attitudinal forces that are thought to um, do most of the work in uh, the, the transformation of the South since World War II. And I've chosen states, again, not perfect controls on those things, but I, um, I want to um, at least try to provide more room for two other forces, which is institutional differences, really treating these states as polities um, in and of themselves, um, and also a lead agency, um, as I'll focus on here. So um, in terms of demographics, both of these states were actually majority black um, up until the late 1920s. They were predominantly rural. Um, uh, they both featured labor oppressive agriculture, speaking of Barrington Moore, right, um, that predominated through the 1940s um, compared to other southern states um, and even, even some deep south states, obviously Georgia, um, the prospects for black insurgency um, right before on the eve of what I'm calling the transition, on the eve of the abolition of the white only primary by the Supreme Court, um, the prospects look dim indeed. Um, um, on almost any measure, um, uh, black resistance enclave rule was um, in a much worse position in 1940 than it was in 1900. Um, uh, that said, there was um, a stirring of the, after the NAACP, uh, local branches had gotten beaten up in, uh, throughout the South in the 1920s and 30s um, as more blacks are actually immigrating, immigrating with an E into, um, into the North. Um, there began to be kind of a puzzling growth of the NAACP in 1940s South Carolina. Um, but back to similarities, neither state had durable factions within the ruling party. While there was some geographic kind of sectional divisions, um, they were really, um, there's little to speak of. But the one thing I want to highlight, uh, something that I emphasize a lot um, throughout my book is the centralization of authority. And here there was, there's quite a bit of a difference. Um, South Carolina um, divided into 46 counties had its state senates uh, structured such that there was just one senator per county, um, and the, the um, state senate really ran roughshod over the rest of the state. It was much more centralized top-down than, than Mississippi was. And Mississippi, in its 82 counties, county-level actors relative to state-level actors um, had a lot more powerful, and in particular, the lobby of sheriffs. Sheriffs um, had this dual function, not just of of policing and repression, but of collecting taxes, which, which um, made them incredibly powerful, um, and that's going to come up later. Um, also, in terms of the way the state parties were organized, the state party um, in South Carolina, like the legislature, was highly malapportioned um, in favor of the black belt, um, but that was not so in Mississippi. Um, I'm not going to talk about all of those um, all of those shocks to the southern body politic, but I'm just going to 
um, take up now to the um, 1950s. So after, this is about 10 years on, after the uh, abolition of the white primary and the shock of the um, of Truman's beginning to reorient the National Party Act against enclave rule instead of in support of it, um, rulers in both parties, sorry, in both states acted fairly similarly. Um, one difference was this really unbelievable, unprecedented um, party building by blacks in South Carolina. They actually <coughs> built a satellite kind of party in waiting, um, trying to um, be recognized as the true legitimate Democratic Party of the state. It was called the Progressive Democratic Party. Um, but rulers in both states cracked down on, on all black organizing efforts. Um, the governors of the two states were the presidential and vice, president, vice presidential candidate of the state's rights party in 1948. Um, and even after Brown, rulers in both states were confident about their ability to um, reverse these democratization pressures. Um, thank you. Um, sure. It was more during Reconstruction. So it had Reconstruction. it had the largest number of black office holders during Reconstruction. Okay. That's right. But but not in the 20th century. There's okay. there's still no black uh, representative from the South until the 60s. Really. Um, um, so after Brown, um, again, um, both states are uh, are well well positioned. They think to um, uh, to block. Um, wait, sorry, you messed me up, Jason. Was I here? Okay. Um, uh, so after Brown enters this, uh, they begin as a lot of Southern states do this period of massive resistance, where there's this real crackdown on all black protest organizations um, that progressive democratic party is literally chased out of the state um, in south carolina black voter registration declines um, organizations of um, white moderates um, and white uh, progressives are are repressed in lots of ways as well um, on you know as of like 1963 there's not a single um, white kid going to school with blacks at any level in these two states. Um, and rulers of both enclaves are still seeking um, as best they can to, def do, to deter any, any further change. Um, with Little Rock, with the deployment of um, uh, uh, paratroopers to Arkansas in 1957-58, things start to change. And change seems undesirable, change seems inevitable. So um, rulers now are just trying to um, uh, defer uh, the impact of these growing democratization pressures as long as possible, or at least um, so that they don't happen while they're, um, while, they're on, uh, while they're in office, right? So if you think of uh, uh, Fritz Hollings, governor of, of South Carolina in the late 50s and so on. Um, what, what surprised me, given the reputation of states like Mississippi, um, is uh, 
the fact that um, Deep South rulers um, actually kind of converge on the same strategy. They wanted the same things. They wanted to kind of have it both ways, to walk this tightrope of public defiance of, of external pressures and domestic insurgents, um, but at the same time deter disorder that could hurt their efforts to attract external capital investment. This became a real, um, a real preoccupation of governors starting in the late 1950s. Um, and uh, uh, in part because um, in, in both states, um, agriculture was um, starting to lose out to, to other places and there was an effort to, um, to industrialize, industrialize these states. But as I'll argue, South Carolina's rulers, um, uh, for institutional reasons, had a greater capacity um, to build consensus within the state Democratic Party and then implement the strategy of kind of smartly accommodating to change. Um, first up was Mississippi in 1962 with the Battle of Oxford when James Meredith matriculated. Um, this was almost, this was a few weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, so this is when John F. Kennedy was really um, under a lot of pressure. Um, at this point, for a lot of the 50s, actually Mississippi had more moderate um, uh, state officials and governors than South Carolina did. Um, but over the 1950s, before this Battle of Oxford, um, Governor Coleman had been unable to improve the state policing apparatus. He tried several times to, um, to centralize the state policing apparatus um, up to the state level, but this required a constitutional convention and for a variety of reasons, rural elites were loath to um, allowing him to call such a convention. Such a convention would open the door to um, reforms of malapportionment and other kinds of reforms that they simply couldn't accept. This, um, coupled with opposition from the sheriff's lobby, uh, made it very difficult um, for him to take these reforms. So there resulted this stalemate within the ruling party between rabid white supremacists, white citizens council forces, and these other um, so-called moderates um, with the new gubernatorial administration, um, uh, Ross Barnett, not the most talented uh, man in the world, bungled these negotiations with, with um, the Kennedy brothers, um, and importantly hailed to, failed to halt this influx of out-of-state out white supremacists who were streaming into the state in September 1962, ready to cause trouble um, as Meredith attempted to desegregate the University of Mississippi. Um, General Edwin Walker, who was shot at but not killed by Lee Harvey Oswald in September 1962 in Dallas. He was the leader, I think, of the head general of U.S. forces in Europe, who was um, so off the wall that he was fired by President Kennedy. Um, it was retired General Walker, who, um, based in Texas and then California, was um, encouraging um, every redneck uh, that uh, he could find to come uh, to come into the state. Um, I don't want to overemphasize this. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, domestic internal opposition to the desegregation of this campus, but at the same time, um, this out-of-state stuff mattered too. Um, and as I discussed in the book, um, this was really an undesired outcome by this, the state authorities. There is 
massive crowd violence. Um, the U.S. Army, again, was deployed for a while. There were more uh, U.S. Army personnel in Oxford, Mississippi than there were in South Korea. Um, and there was an immediate effect on the state's ability to um, attract external investment and many, um, in fact, many northern companies that had begun to obviously attracted to the low-wage right-to-work South um, began reneging on their commitments. So the contrast couldn't be sharper with South Carolina, um, and it's, um, that's Harvey Gant. You might have remembered when he ran against, um, what's his face, Jesse Helms um, for senator in 1980s in North Carolina. Um, he's desegregating the uh, Clemson College in January 1963. South Carolina had um, an advantage here in moving last, and that is um, that its state law enforcement officials were able to go to Oxford while it's still smoldering and interview officials there and learn some negative lessons, learn not what to do. But um, over the, 19, the latter part of the 1950s, um, uh, Governor Hollings and others had done a really skillful job of, of developing a powerful um, state law enforcement apparatus um, that wasn't just powerful, but that was centralized, really um, controlled by the office of the governor, which made it, um, given that the office, of, it was the governor who was charged with ex um, attracting external investment, um, really made it possible um, for uh, a person with those kinds of incentives to um, wield this law enforcement apparatus to deter and repress white mob violence. It did a good job of this. Um, there were still many politicians around the state um, who were just aghast at this desegregation and wanted to organize citizens council forces to stream up to Clemson. And Hollings did a good job of using a much more centralized state party council um, to buy off this opposition in many ways and to uh, deter a big uh, campus conflagration has happened in Mississippi. So the resulting desegregation was a real anticlimax. The state was immediately lauded by Kennedy, who in a press conference, to get to your point, talked about um, immediately doubling the number of, of, um, of uh, defense contracts with South Carolina firms. Um, so kind of the opposite effect has happened in Mississippi. So, sorry, this is a terrible slide, so I'll just, just do I still have some time? Yeah. Okay. So just to talk to talk about the aftermath, to kind of zoom forward about ten or so years. I do, again, I the book is more subtle on how much these campus crises mattered. I have to kind of exaggerate with, for the purpose of this talk, but just talk about the aftermath. So an aftermath in Mississippi was a state that had many fewer members of the Ku Klux Klan than in South Carolina. Um, reacted to this federal military intervention with um, just this extreme white supremacist backlash. This further corroded county and local level law enforcement, which became fully penetrated by the Klan. One of the main efforts by the FBI in the ensuing years was, was just to infiltrate um, uh, and, and uh, get rid as best they could of the the Klan who are members of Mississippi law enforcement. Um, I use the word induced there twice, but I guess it must be really important. Um, uh, this spiral of violence and white backlash was um, 
music to the ears to national black protest organizations that redoubled their own um, investment of scarce resources um, into the state in order to, um, to um, really induce televised violence that could be used to, um, to move the attitudes of, of uh, non-Southern whites to put more pressure on Congress. Um, so we had this ensuing spiral of interventions and disorder um, that, that led to something else really important, and that is much greater federal oversight of, of Mississippi's democratization than happened in other states. Black voter registration began the decade below 1%, obviously the worst in the entire South. By 1970, black voter registration was the highest um, in Mississippi. It was higher than in any other Deep South state and almost the highest in the region. Within a few years after that, it had by far the um, largest number of black elected officials. Again, in part because of the fact that um, this disorder and this bungled democratization period um, led to this federal oversight that, um, that kind of sped up black advances in some ways. But importantly, importantly for the future of the Mississippi Democratic Party, um, there was also um, an incredibly quick mobilization of blacks, but it's important that it happened outside of the rump white supremacist Democratic Party of Mississippi. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and other kind of aborted efforts to develop um, a, a more radical black political vehicle than later a more moderate biracial uh, vehicle that ended up be, um, securing the kind of re the represent the recognition of the National Party as the official black, uh, sorry, the official Democratic Party of Mississippi um, led to led to this this uh, really protracted conflict such that the, the actual state Democrats in Mississippi and white supremacist, white moderate, and black groupings remained fissured until 1976. Mississippi really didn't have a normal um, delegation to a presidential convention until Jimmy Carter's year. So this was this period of just disorder and disaster, but I'll, as I'll argue in a and a little bit, this was really bad for, in the short term for Mississippi Democrats, but it was very good for Democrats in the state in the, in the long term. Since this slide was, slide was so bad, I'm going to give you something else here. Um, since I'm uh, back at Harvard, these are some pictures from the files of um, what became called the KGB in the cotton fields, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. This is our own, your own Marshall Gans from his surveillance file. And the woman, um, the white woman on the right is my dissertation advisor, Theda Scotchpole, um, down in Mississippi, um, teaching black, uh, black high school kids uh, math as part of a, of a pre-college program in the late 60s. That's from her file. A state agency um, that was thrown together very quickly um, in the 50s, but expanded amidst all this disorder um, and eventually collected a, something like 70,000 files on possible um, dissidents and troublemakers. Um, so your own troublemakers are represented here. These, are, these files are all now digitized so you can look them up. Um, they weren't when I was doing my research. But. Um, and here, poor Marshall is getting, um, and this letter shows a phone call from um, an informant for the Sovereignty Commission 
who says, I called up Marshall at his, at his parents' house. I asked about the whereabouts of some bad guy, and he said, oh, try calling the Highlander Center in Tennessee or call SNCC headquarters. Maybe they'll know. Um, Marshall, understandably not realizing that this was some, I think, unpaid kind of amateur informant um, who was trying to keep tabs on all of the, um, the bad folks from SNCC. Right. Exactly. Right. He didn't give away the store there. Um, so just to in contrast to the bungling of Mississippi's um, uh, experience of the 60s is the experience in South Carolina. Um, there's this process really of increasing returns whereby the state was, um, was rewarded for its smooth um, desegregation, um, its final uh, college desegregation crisis. Um, that led elites to kind of double down on strategic accommodation. That in turn led um, the more uh, rabid white supremacists to leave the, the South Carolina Democratic Party earlier into this, the state's Republican Party. Um, and that further um, meant that uh, the now shrinking state Democratic Party had to reach out earlier to blacks. So the South Carolina Democrats out of necessity, not out of racial attitudes or ideology, um, incorporated black elites and voters much earlier and more smoothly. Um, so, that, so there's this um, kind of accelerated sorting process. They, they also kind of brought in almost as um, in a James Scott sing like a state way, still not understanding much about um, black South Carolina. They brought in leaders from the NAACP to help kind of make black South Carolina legible to them. Um, this actually if, um, improved the NAACP's efforts to deter other black protest organizations from entering the state. One of the kind of mysteries of the civil rights period is why South Carolina was so quiet, why there were so few um, contentious um, events there. Um, and as, if you look at the records of CORE or SNCC, they keep complaining about the the really effective work by the NAACP officials there um, who convinced everyone they knew to um, um, not to extend a helping hand to SNCC and CORE and so on. Again, uh, this, uh, this democratization process is not really the result of skill or rulers' preferences over racial equality. Um, and this, this we know um, by the fact that there were these, um, there continue to be these um, hiccups, I guess you could say. There's a, in the Orangeburg massacre of 1968, the, the state highway patrol murdered um, uh, protesting uh, college kids, uh, black college kids at South Carolina State, a black university there. Um, and there was really a, a massive 18 month long uh, strike by black hospital workers in Charleston that was really the first and last effort by um, Southerners um, after the Memphis uh, sanitation strike um, to secure collective bargaining rights for public sector workers. Um, but again, this, um, this was a, a, a bungled long episode that almost led to um, mass violence about 10 miles southeast of where um, uh, the, the black man was murdered a few days ago. Um, 
So to use a phrase that a Mississippi Republican governor used in the 1870s, the goal was to harness the revolution that was coming, anyhow to limit the degree to which the, the federal government and black protest organizations would oversee a speedier and in fact a, a deeper compliance with federal directives, court directives and so on. Um, this successful um, uh, strategic accommodation was good in the short term for ambitious South Carolina Democrats like Fritz Hollings, like John West, Democrats who had realistic national political ambitions because they were associated with um, uh, Southern Democrats who were doing it right in the 60s. Um, it was exactly at this point that um, hunger was discovered. This made me think of a March of Sins argument, right, that there's never um, famine in a democracy. Well, this is exactly at the moment where there begins to be severe malnutrition in the Mississippi Delta and in the South Carolina Low Country, and almost in a kind of a, is it Captain Renault in, in uh, Casablanca? Shocked about gambling in Casablanca, right? Um, the um, head of the local NAACP takes um, uh, Senator Hollings on a hunger tour of the South Carolina Low Country. Hollings grew up in the Low Country, but he discovers uh, malnutrition and ends up developing a national hunger policy and helps to really expand um, the American food stamp program. But again, all of this is, is hard to imagine even 10 years before when he was governor. Well, I didn't find a lot of smoking guns in the archives besides Marshall and Theta, but one thing I did like was this um, re recounting of a phone conversation that Strom Thurmond is having in 1962 with his with his top advisor, Harry Dent, who will end up um, becoming um, President Nixon's um, main advisor to th Southern states in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so right before Strom Thurmond switches, famously switches parties in 1964 to the Republican Party, arguing, as people always do when they switch parties, that I didn't leave the party, the party left me, right? It abandoned its old views. Well, he says, he makes clear in this quote that he doesn't think he can survive a 1966 Democratic primary because it has too many black voters in it. Um, and that's why he's switching. Um, just, um, this has come from the book, just one way to think about differences in federal oversight. This is the share of a state's black voting age population that lived in counties featuring federal examiners sent to enforce the Voting Rights Act. In Mississippi, Mississippi it was about a third of of the state's black voting age population in South Carolina is 4%. Again, that gives you um, uh, a taste for um, the really sharp degree in uh, federal oversight, even within the bad uh, Deep South. So I just want to talk briefly about some legacies of these different paths out of Dixie. I've already suggested that um, there are some legacies. So over the long term, um, these different experiences had different and and kind of ironic effects on the value of the Democratic Party label. Um, the bungling of, of the transition in, in Mississippi um, allowed white Mississippi Democrats to, to credibly claim to white voters for decades after that they remained good racial conservatives because they had been resisting the incorporation of blacks into the party for so long. Indeed, the party was um, remained um, uh, 
uh, schizophrenic into the into the uh, latter 1970s. Um, uh, for South Carolina, on the other hand, there was the opposite effect. Um, South Carolina Democrats made peace with blacks and incorporated them so quickly that it was difficult for them to make the argument that we South Carolina Democrats are a great deal more conservative than national Democrats with names like McGovern and Carter and so on. Um, so uh, that led to um, kind of contrasting party fortunes, or at least I could say more cautiously, helps to explain why Democrats held on to power in Mississippi a lot longer, as I'll show you. But again, the opposite impact on, on uh, economic development. Um, one thing that's worth maybe talking about in Q&A is um, the degree to which maybe I'm overstating there being kind of different paths out of Dixie, different democratization experiences, because when we think about the South, and I think if you think about the South and you're right to think about it like this, um, there seems still to be a great um, deal more um, in common among these states than separates them. Um, this is just a brief picture of Republican advancement in office holding at the state level. Um, and here in Deep South lower houses, that bottom line as of 2001 is the share of seats held by Republicans in the Mississippi lower house compared to Georgia and then above it, South Carolina. Um, again, in contrast, we see the uh, differences. Again, I don't want to hang all of this on the transition, but I, I would argue strongly that that some of the differences in economic development have to do with really the difficult reputations, uh, the reputation that Mississippi had that's been very difficult for it to get out of the, the public mind, not just the national mind, but the international mind. A lot of the foreign direct investment that South, South Carolina has secured has not just been Yankee, but it's been German and Japanese. Again, similar kinds of uh, trends for per capita income. Um, but again, thinking back to, well, maybe there's still just, um, these legacies aren't so strong. Um, there's still a, um, a lot of commonality. Um, your own Professor Chetty and the economics department, right, um, did this um, very well publicized study last year about um, intergenerational mobility and you see um, you see the black belt there, and you see here again today, um, it's exactly in those places where, um, uh, where black belt elites dominated for a century that um, the prospects for a child to advance into upper strata of the income distribution or, are the worst. Um, finally, just to close with some implications, um, uh, I'm not, you know what, I've talked too much. If you want to talk about that, if you want to talk about what the, what the prospects for Southern democracy are after Shelby County, is Professor Kisar here? Okay, well, we, we, I would defer to him, but um, we could talk about that too, but let me shut up for now. Thank you. Very much.